This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not to be considered medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgments when making recommendations for their patients. Patients in need of medical or behavioral advice should consult their family health care providers. In the event of an emergency, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department. Product mentions are not endorsements. You're busy and you want the best for your kids. We're here to help. This is Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. As parents, we have all been there. Whether it's a persistent fever, rapid breathing, maybe a bad spill off a bike or a deep cut that might require stitches. It's that moment that you realize your child needs medical help and it can leave us all feeling panicked. I've been there. And it seems like these things are always happening at night or on the weekend, right? So if your pediatrician is unavailable, should you head to an urgent care or go straight to a hospital emergency department or an ER as we know it? Monique Keaton Perkins is a clinical educator with more than 10 years of experience as an urgent care nurse. And Dr. Mark Griffiths, a pediatric emergency medicine physician, also serves as medical director for the emergency department at Children's Hughes Spalding Hospital. They join us to share what they and their colleagues want every parent to know. Should you find yourself in one of those moments, their insight could help you more confidently get to where you need to be and help you understand what's happening on the other side of the waiting room door. Before we meet our guests, here's a peek behind the scenes into what a typical workday sounds like for them. Wow, so that just gives you a little taste of a typical work day, what it sounds like for today's guests. I know what it's like to be on the other side of that waiting room or patient room door, but that audio really gives us a glimpse into what the caregivers that we're impatiently waiting to see are up against. Dr. Griffiths, thank you so much for being with us. I kind of want to just first get to know you and your role there at the Children's Emergency Department, the ED, or what we know as the ER. Sure. So I am Mark Griffiths. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician and the medical director of the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Emergency Department at Hugh Spaulding and an assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Emory University. And Dr. Griffiths, you see uh, some of the toughest of the tough situations. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of just what a typical day, the chaos behind the scenes when it comes to the emergency room? So emergency medicine is interesting in that you never know what your day is going to be like. And so there unfortunately isn't a typical day for us. Some days we're seeing lots of children with respiratory illnesses like we're doing right now. Other days we're reducing or fixing the bones on kids that have gotten injured on the field of play. And uh, other days we're diagnosing children with cancer. Other days we're giving good news that the blood tests were completely normal and that it was a simple viral illness that the child should get over in the next couple of days. And so we go through these wild range of emotions on a day-to-day basis. And one of our biggest struggles is being able to compartmentalize that and give each family the specified and dedicated care that they deserve and that we want to give, just having to contend with all the challenges of all those kinds of situations at the same time. I was at a conference last week in Seattle 
with a bunch of pediatric emergency medicine researchers from all over the country. And every children's from Seattle to New York to Houston and everywhere in between is struggling with high, high levels of respiratory illnesses right now. The example I've been giving families is that when COVID first came, it was the ultimate bully. It bullied us. It bullied other viruses. And for a year and a half, we honestly did not see very many low-hanging fruit when it comes to respiratory illnesses. We had a lot of colds because everybody was wearing their masks. Everybody was sanitizing like crazy. Everybody was keeping six feet apart. And so kids just didn't exchange the viruses like they normally do. And as we've gotten more comfortable, everybody's gotten vaccinated, and we've relaxed some of the restrictions that we had initially, we have seen all these viruses come back. And usually they would come in very predictable patterns, but now they've all come back together. I had a child last week who has had 10 days of fever straight. And when we tested them for a viral illness because they got admitted and they were having some breathing difficulties, they tested positive for four different viruses all at once. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so Jeez. that's just what we're seeing right now. Nobody's coming in very simple. Everybody's coming in with everything loaded on. And so we're seeing the surge nationwide. And I think that's why this episode's so important to give people the information of when you need to take action, because we're always sort of hesitant. And we're going to go through a lot of different scenarios throughout this episode. But first, outside of the emergency department, you are a dad. You have four children yourself. So I'm sure you have plenty of experiences of just that feeling as a parent, even though you're the expert of what do I do? Absolutely. And I get those opportunities often because <laughs> they're very active. I try to keep them involved in sports. So there's risk of sports injuries. And then I get the privilege also of having a very large family. Everybody calls me at all hours of the day because everybody's all over the country. And you have to make those decisions in the middle of the night sometimes. But I enjoy it. I mean, this is why I went to med school to be a resource to my family and to my communities. Yeah. And, and that's the big question that you really hit on. Your family's lucky because they can just pick up the phone. I can give a personal scenario. We always, as parents, are struggling with that. It's the middle of the night. My child has a fever. It seems like they are struggling to breathe. Do I take them to the ER? Do I wait to go to the pediatrician in the morning? And personally, with my seven-week-old son, we were 10 o'clock at night on the phone with our pediatrician, Eve of Christmas Eve, we were describing his symptoms. He had runny nose and he seemed to be coughing a lot, but a different kind of cough than I've ever heard. I have another child and I'd never heard this kind of cough. And they said, you could go either way. You can go into the ER if you want to, but it's Christmas Eve tomorrow. So it could be a really long wait and maybe just wait it out and come to us in the morning. And we went in the morning and our pediatrician was like, get to the ER now. We went there. We were admitted into Children's for RSV. He was in there for 10 days. And it's one of the reasons I'm so dedicated to Children's because you saved him <laughs> because of that fast action in that ER, taking him right away and putting him into admission. And that moment as a parent, what are some of the key things we need to be thinking about when making that decision? I like the steps that you took. I think you did exactly the way that I would encourage anybody that called me how to approach it and wasn't right down the street from me. I'm always reminded of advice I got from one of my seniors when I was a freshman back in college. He said, the smartest kids don't necessarily know all the details, but they know how to get to the right resources and they activate those right. So I think parents, the best tool in the tool belt is their pediatrician. That's the person that knows your child best outside of the family. They can kind of pick up on subtle things that, hmm, that child is not 
acting like they normally do. They're not as active as they usually are, or they're not breathing as comfortably as I've grown accustomed to seeing them breathe. And so I think using that pediatrician as your quarterback is the best first move. And then based on her or his discretion, then utilizing some of the other tools that might be available in your local community. In our area, we are very fortunate to have a pretty robust urgent care system. And I look at that as the next level of protection for our kids, because there you have, especially in our system, pediatricians who can give that level of expertise in terms of diagnosis and treatment that can be available after hours. Pediatricians are humans too, so they've got to close the doors sometimes. We've got the urgent care centers as that cocoon to offer you outside of those normal hours. And they can handle pretty severe cases, but what's really good about them is that if it is someone that needs even higher level of care, they're a good buffer to get them to that higher level of care, which is the ER. And there, of course, we've got 24-7 coverage. We've got all the specialists you can think of. We've got the intensive care units for the sickest children. And so there, I think, would be the last ring of protection there for the kids. But I think it's really important to utilize it in that sequential manner so that we don't exhaust our resources. Emergency rooms are notorious for long waits. But can you give us a look behind that door and what's going on behind the scenes to ensure that people that need immediate attention are being tended to first in that line. And that's a juggling act, I can imagine, for you. It is. And unfortunately, it's not one that we can predict with 100% accuracy at all times. The month before COVID, we were going through a flu surge and we were pulling physicians from everywhere. I had everybody working in the ER just trying to staff some of these clinical needs that we had. And then when COVID hit, just fell off a cliff. We went from seeing 200 patients a day to literally 50 patients a day. And so when you've got this variability, it becomes really difficult to staff the ER, but we do our best we can. I know at our hospital, we look back at previous years to kind of predict down to the day what that volume on March 18th is gonna be. That's how specific we try to be. And so we staff accordingly. We prioritize those that are sickest, so if a trauma comes in, sometimes we'll get as much as 15 minutes head time or leeway before the trauma arrives to as little as 30 seconds to we're pulling up to your door. There's a gunshot victim coming in and we have to mobilize all of our resources. And so those are our highest priority. We also have things like children that might be having breathing difficulties from near drowning incidents, respiratory illnesses like you experienced or overwhelming infections like sepsis, those kinds of things where minutes are critical. And so we prioritize those as everyone can understand. And then there's those that are healthier than me, but there's parental concern. And so we have an area for those as well. However, if the first group comes in in significant numbers, that latter group is going to have to wait. And that's where we see a lot of the weight is in what we call the lower acuity or the less severe patients. And sometimes it's hard for folks to understand that because if you've been there for two or three hours and then somebody that just got there 15 minutes ago is getting all this attention, Sometimes if you don't understand the full scope of what's going on, it's, it's difficult to process that. But what I try to encourage folks to do a simulation in your mind is if it was your child, what would you want us to do? And I think when people start to think of it from that standpoint, the paradigm shifts. Doctor, I'm so glad you brought that up because I remember I have two boys. So I've been to the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta emergency room more times than I wanted to ever experience. But in times where it wasn't as serious, where it was an injury that I knew that long wait time, I knew it was okay because there's somebody else's child that needed immediate attention. Mine was not life-threatening. And that was so key to point that out to people. Are there certain times or days that you notice, you say that you research the influx, that you notice that it's busier than others? Well, I think all ERs know or have seen Mondays as the busiest days. You get those 
illnesses you try to power through over the weekend and then just can't do it, can't, can't go on anymore. We see a flux in the beginning of the week, but then also I think almost like a bookend pattern towards the end of the week as well, as people try to get it in before they get to the weekend when resources start to shut down somewhat. And then on the weekends, we see a lot of sports injuries. I affectionately tell parents that supracondylar fracture, which is an, a fracture by the elbow bone, that's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday injury. <laughs> those are the days we see those. It was interesting when we did our drowning episode, the doctor was mentioning, you know, we know on Labor Day that we're going to have increased cases of drowning. I mean, that's your reality. And it's really amazing that you can continue to be such an incredible life-saving resource for people in all these different scenarios. And I want to look at some of them. First up, let's look at fever. You talked about that example of a child with a fever for 10 days. So what's some of the care that goes into that? And when do you know to go to urgent care or the ER? I will give you this caveat for everything in pediatrics. The answer is it depends. <laughs> mm-hmm. And here's why. As you're growing up, your body goes through significant changes. And one of those changes is your immune capacity. The way we approach a fever is different in a five-year-old compared to a five-day-old. If you're a five-year-old, in my mind, you're a big boy. <laughs> your immune system is fully developed. You're probably up to date on your vaccinations. You might've even gotten your COVID shot. And so I don't worry as much as a pediatrician and an ER physician in a child with a fever to 100.1 or 102, especially if they respond well to the Motrin that we give them. That's different though, if you contrast that with a five-day-old whose immune system is very immature, is actually relying still on a lot of the mom's antibodies that's transmitted through the breast milk and left over um, from the intrauterine phase. And so those children, we have to do what I call the full court press. If a child like that comes in with a fever as low as 100.4 or higher, then the potential for them to get very sick very quickly, while it's slow, it's still significant. And we don't want to miss those one or two children out of every hundred that can happen to. The youngest I've ever diagnosed a UTI in is a three-day-old little girl. So it can happen at any age. Oh my goodness. That's hard to even imagine. And so let's talk about something like a suspected broken bone. What kind of care would you look toward? Very common. So I always preface this when I tell children, you know, you tell them they have a broken bone. Sometimes the immediate reaction is to cry. But then I tell them very quickly, listen, I don't know if you realize this, but you're a superhero. Because if I break my bone, I have to get surgery because my bones are done growing. They're not going to fall back in line like they should. But children, because they're still growing, still maturing, as long as the bones are lined up in the same zip code, as I tell them, then it's going to heal up really, really well and maybe need surgery, but oftentimes not. But still, it's best to get those kind of injuries evaluated in the ER. That's why this is so helpful, because these are scenarios that I wouldn't have thought of. So let's talk about something like a persistent productive cough. The bane of my existence. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how do you know? Could it just be a cough and a cold? And do you go to the ER for something like that? But it can be, like you said, minutes that you need to take action. Yeah. So when it comes to respiratory illnesses, we are particularly careful with, with children just because what we call their reserve, their ability to compensate and have a couple extra dollars in the bank when it comes to breathing ability is not as high in children as it is in adults. And so when it comes to respiratory illnesses, you really want to take a look at the child and see, are they breathing heavier than they normally do? If they are able to clear some of the mucus out of their nose by blowing their nose if they're able to, or if they're younger and can't blow their nose, suctioning it out, 
with my favorite device uh, called the Nose Frida. Um, I tell families all the time, you can suck out somebody's soul with that device. It is so yes, good. You can. <laughs> I've done this so many times. It works, yes, though. Yes. <laughs> my husband's like, that really thing's well. disgusting. I'm like, again, it works. <laughs> but it works. It works. If you can see how well they're breathing, and if they're breathing okay to you, then I think it's safe to follow up with the pediatrician, get an outpatient assessment. If you notice that belly is moving harder than it normally does, if you start seeing the skin around the rib cage suck in, and this little notch at the bottom of your neck called the suprasternal area, if that area starts to suck in, then I think you need to go see a higher level of care, either that urgent care or the ED. So that's something that we experienced ourselves with my older son. And they said that exact thing. Can you see his rib cage? Because that mm -hmm. means that he's labored so much and breathing right. in. We did. And we had to go to the ED. So let's talk about something like vomiting diarrhea. We have this with kids all the time because of the stomach bug. How do you know mm -hmm. when it's something more serious that you can't just treat at home? I'll say because of technology and medical advancement, we have more options now than we did in the past. Previously, if you had the vomiting and diarrhea, it was probably due to a virus, like you're saying, and then the risk was you could get dehydrated, need IV fluids and things like that. With some of the medicines we have now, the oral medicines that can suppress that desire to vomit, that can help keep you out of the hospital and then allow you to stay hydrated at home using the hydration fluids of your choice, the healthy ones, mm -hmm. <laughs> and being able to avoid having to come for the IV and the fluids and things like that. So that's also another good opportunity where you can talk to your pediatrician about what options you have. They could potentially prescribe that medication and then you could see how the patient is doing. And then I will tell you nine times out of 10, the children tolerate it pretty well. You give them the, the oral medicine, they're able to start drinking. What about something like a suspected or accidental swallowing of a potential toxin or something that, you know, that's why we lock up our medicine cabinet or our cleaning closet, but it happens. So how do you know when you need to go in? What are some of the signs with children? So that's a really common one as well. When it comes to substances, we have resources, not only in your pediatrician, but in poison control. That poison control number is standard around the country and folks can call that number and get some really good advice from a medical toxicologist. And that way you can potentially stave off a trip to the ER if they deem it as something that's not toxic. Let's talk about head injury. This is very common, especially with high school football players. But this sadly just happened to us yesterday. My three-year-old son in preschool, we got a call. The two children were running at each other and they hit each other right in the head. He had a huge goose egg in the middle of his head. And I said to my husband last night, I was like, maybe we need to take him in. It was starting to get blue. And he's like, let's just wait overnight. I slept with him all night. I was panicked that he was going to start throwing up in a concussion. And I didn't know what to do in those types of situations. How do you know? This is also a really common thing for us. I think it's one of our top five diagnoses that we see in the pediatric emergency medicine space. And fortunately, we have some good research on which kids need that higher level of care versus which ones don't. When I was a resident, we were participating in this research study called the PCARN Head Injury Study, which stands for the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. So it's this collective of pediatric emergency physicians all around the country that come together to do studies together rather than just in single units around the country. So usually typical study would give you a hundred, few hundred participants. This one had, I believe, had about 68,000 participants. So we had really good information. And we know that overwhelmingly children do really well with head injuries. They just bounce back really well. They've got a, they've got a lot of uh, space up there, a lot of mass <laughs> that they eventually grow into. Right. And we know that if they never pass out, if they don't throw up, 
they never have a seizure. And if that injury is localized to the forehead, the risk of what we call a clinically significant intracranial injury is low. And so overwhelming numbers of children are in that category of they'll be fine. What you're looking for is, does this child not look right to you? And the best person to make that determination is really the parents. Trust your gut and go to the ER because just like respiratory illnesses, any kind of injuries to the head, to the eyes, we want to take that seriously and get that evaluated by the people that have the most resources. So what are some of the types of accidents or injuries you're seeing so regularly that parents could take action right now to prevent them from happening? I think your last example was perfect. That head injury is number one. And unfortunately, it's one of the most preventable injuries because we have good technology. We've got really good helmets. And so bicycle safety, skateboard safety, roller skate safety is just so important. My kids know if I catch them on anything that rolls without a helmet, I'm cutting tablet screen time. The tax man is coming and I tax you in time. <laughs> yes, dad. Yes, dad. Yes, dad. I know those threats yes. well. <laughs> it actually reminds me of one other scenario that I'm curious about when it comes to a severe cut that might need stitches. You know, when you're falling mm-hmm. and stitches need to happen pretty quickly. How do you know when it's serious enough? Yeah. And that's also a great one where you can talk to the pediatrician or seek care in urgent care first, because they can actually visually see that for themselves and give you an objective assessment as opposed to how do you feel their breathing? That's so subjective. With that cut, it's actually huge or not, something that needs to be repaired or not. And this is a question that not only parents have, but physicians have. So it's not something that just parents struggle with. It's something that medical providers struggle with as well. You make such a good point that so much of this is going with your gut and that instinct, you know your kid, are they off? And if they need to be seen, what's the one piece of advice you would leave with parents if their gut's telling them they need to be seen? That's a really good question. I would say if you feel that gut instinct, try to also engage your resources like we're talking about. So engage the pediatrician and then have a narrative to share with the doc you're going to go see. So one thing, for example, with a child with croup, I'll always ask the family, are they breathing as heavy now as when you first got in the car and made the decision to drive to the ER? And almost all the times they'll tell me, no, you know what? They're actually breathing easier now. And that tells me, all right, this child is getting better. They're making the right moves that I want to see them make. They probably just need a little assistance. And so that narrative background of of where the child was, where they are now, that really helps the physician predict what the next steps will be. Well, having experienced the care there at Children's, I can tell you that as parents, we are forever grateful for people like you. Dr. Griffith, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Appreciate it as well. Now we're going to switch gears, moving out of the emergency department and into the urgent care setting as we get some behind-the-scenes insight from Monique, a nurse who spent more than a decade in urgent care, often working as the triage or screening nurse who helps assess patients to determine how quickly they need to be seen or, in some cases, if they will need transport to an emergency department. Monique, thanks for being with me. Can you give us an idea of what a typical day is like for you and your colleagues, all the different types of things that you see? So we see on a regular basis kids that come in with ear pain, sore throat, those kids that come in with respiratory distress. Here recently, our volumes have really increased at our site. We have 46 patients within the first hour to sign in, which can be a very, very heavy load on not only the patients' families that are waiting, but on the providers and the nurses as well. We are quickly trying to get those patients assessed appropriately and get them back to see the doctor. 
let's take a scenario, something that would be, I would imagine on the more serious side, something like swallowing either a toy or a coin, something like a battery. Can you tell us in a situation like that, how would everything go down? So those patients should actually go straight to the emergency room. Those are very severe situations to where we at Urgent Care are not capable of handling the care for that patient and quickly getting them to the emergency room, whether it's you driving your child or calling 911 to get them there quickly so that they can receive the effective care that's needed. We are very limited in our resources at Urgent Care, so the emergency room will be the proper place to take them because they're going to have the required patient care that they need there. A lot of what I'm hearing, the difference between the emergency department and urgent care is just the ability and the equipment that you have at urgent care is going to be much different than the emergency department, that you're not going to be equipped for certain things, right? That is correct. Walk me through that. What are some of the resources and the equipment that you have versus the emergency department? What we have in urgent care, we do have a lab, but we are limited to the type of tests that we can run in the lab. Where in the hospital setting, the emergency department has a lab that is able to run tests and get those results to you, the provider, quickly at that site versus having to send the lab out to get results elsewhere. We do have x-ray when a kid comes in for a head injury. We don't have the capability of doing a CT scan. We don't have the capability of doing MRIs or ultrasounds for when the kid comes in with testicular pain. That's why those things should be going to the emergency department because they're going to get those tests done quickly and be able to not only get the test done, but also able to perform those treatments that are needed if your child may need for testicular pain. A lot of times they will need to have surgery to correct that. They're there with not only the equipment that's needed to determine if they have a testicular torsion, but also the providers that's needed to care for them. For sickle cell patients, Yes, we are able to do labs, but we don't have the hematologist there to consult right away to get an answer of what is needed to care for that patient at that time. So that's why it's very important that patients with those chronic conditions go to the emergency room or with those complaints, go to the emergency room so they can get the care that they need. And you know, children's, there's a lot of urgent care centers and there's three hospitals. And so when is it the right time to see someone like you versus going to the emergency room? So things that we typically see in the urgent care, and again, urgent care is there to fill the gap for when you cannot see your pediatrician. So the hours that are after your pediatric office is closed during the holidays or on the weekends when you can't get them. So we would like patients to first start there because, again, we want that continuum of care with their pediatrician. But in the times there where we are filling in the gap for your pediatrician office, severe sore throats, ear pain, mild injuries that may occur from sports injuries, mild lacerations we can see in urgent care, pink eyes, fevers that are for a few days. Those are things that we see in urgent care. Kids that are in respiratory distress that may have a history of asthma and they have failed successful treatment at home. Those are things that should go directly to the emergency rooms. If you are concerned that your child is dehydrated, That's in the emergency room because we don't provide uh, rehydration fluids. But simple things like vomiting, your child's vomited twice a day, but they've been able to hold down food. Those are things that you can see your pediatrician for the next day, or we can see an urgent care to assess them to make sure that they are not going down the wrong way. You've been doing this for 12 years as an urgent care nurse. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the patients that are coming through urgent care then versus now? 
the severe illness that they are experiencing when they come into urgent care. One of the biggest things that I think that we see on a constant basis, the asthmatic patients that are coming in where they may have received three treatments at home in the last four hours or six hours, and they are just not improving. They come in, they're in respiratory distress. We are giving them more treatments, but ultimately they're going down to the emergency room, which is where the parents should be taking them because they have failed treatment at home so that they get that proper care. It used to be in urgent care. We saw more of the simplistic illnesses, I would say, like your ear infections, your rashes, your common cold symptoms, your sore throat, your pink eyes. We still see those things, but we see more severe illnesses and chronic conditions such as sickle cell patients in the urgent care that should be going to the emergency rooms than we used to. Yeah. When my son was a lot younger, he had asthma. And when we would do his breathing treatments, and it's exactly what you're talking about, it's more common issue than many people will realize. And when your breathing treatment is not sufficed at home and you really need to take action, I think it's important for parents to know that the urgent care is not the place to go is what you're saying. Correct. Yes. You should be going directly to the emergency room to get that treatment. What are some other scenarios that you can point out specifically that you would feel comfortable seeing there in the urgent care so that there's not as much of a load on the ER that doesn't need to be there? Sore throats, ear pain, allergies, cold symptoms, minor injuries, sports injuries are things that should be coming to the urgent care because we can see those. We can stabilize injuries and put splints on them and then have them to follow up with orthopedics if needed. We can take care of minor lacerations and those minor lacerations would be how do you determine when should I go to the ED or the urgent care when it comes to lacerations? And I would say for lacerations that there's no continuous bleeding, they're small in size, it doesn't look extremely deep. Those are things that we can care for in the urgent care. But also in line to what the process is like when you come in with a laceration for your child. So that patient is signed in, the nurse will take a quick look to see, okay, is this something we can handle here in urgent care? Or is it something that we need to send down to the emergency room because it's beyond the scope of practice that our providers can care for in the urgent care setting. So that screening nurse plays a very important role in getting the patients through and determining, okay, we can't see them here. Let's get them to the proper place. Do you think it's worse post-COVID? And what are you seeing as a difference? I think we have a new norm. It used to be that we have respiratory season, early fall, late winter, and I think respiratory season has been year-round. <laughs> In the summer, our volumes typically dipped, but not this summer nor last summer. Our volumes have stayed high consistently. I think post-COVID, there's just been a new normal of how viruses like run. There's no prediction of how we used to be able to do those things. Yeah, there is no normal anymore. What are some of the things you do to reassure parents and the children? Because this is a scary time when they're walking through those doors. I think for parents, just reassuring them in regards to their concerns, listening to them, answering their questions. For the kids, I think it's making it a fun time for them, not making it scary. We give out stickers, we play games, we do anything to make them comfortable. Just the simple things of letting them sit in their parents' laps while you're doing their vital signs. Those things are comforting, not removing the parent from the room while you're doing anything with the child. They play an important role in 
the security of their child. So just letting them be involved as much as possible when it comes to their visit, I think makes a difference in how we care and treat for our patients. Do you have any advice for parents in keeping calm? Because a lot of what our kids see from us is how they are going to react in a scary situation. I think in situations where we've had emergencies and we have parents that are just very upset because they don't know what's going on. I'm just taking that moment to pull the parent, the mom or the dad aside and just explaining to them, we need you to stay as calm as possible. Take some deep breaths because your child can feel that you're afraid. And so they're going to be afraid as well. But also explaining each and every step to that parent of what's happening and what's going on to give them a sense of security as well. Keeping them involved in what's going on is a great tool for creating that partnership between the provider, the caregivers, and the parents. And that's what is needed to give that quality, safe patient care. And how much of this, you called it sort of all hands on deck, how much of this is a well-oiled machine where you and all of your colleagues are just working in tandem to make sure everything can run as smoothly as possible? Throughout the process, continuously, from the front desk to the back, whether it's an emergent patient or a patient that's non-emergent, and we are just continuously working as a team. All parents are not familiar with urgent care. This may be their first visit. So explaining when they sign in after they're registered, hey, there are three patients ahead of you before you will see the screening nurse. After the screening nurse sees them, hey, there's so many patients ahead of you before you're going to see the provider. We have this many providers today, so you may not be seeing that provider and you see another one. So just because someone is calling back before you doesn't necessarily mean that you're being out of line. When you're placing them in the room, letting them know, hey, the provider has two, three patients ahead of you. They're currently with the patient, even when the x-ray and labs, just informing them at every step of the way where they are in the process and that communication just makes for a great visit and a great understanding from the parent of what is going on during that time. Yeah, when you have that communication and that understanding, it makes everybody's job easier, I would imagine. (laughs) What's the one thing that you want to tell parents when they are visiting an urgent center? What is the thing that you hope that they take away from it? Every parent feels that at that moment that their child concern or sickness is the most important at that moment. We are doing our best to recognize those kids that need to be seen right away. The same providers and nurses that are caring for the sickest patient are also caring for your child that may not be as severe of an illness as the other. So just please be patient with us. We are trying our best to provide safe, quality care to all patients that walk into our facility. And when we hear that chaos behind those doors, we get an idea of just what a typical day is like for you. Thank you for all that you do to keep us and our children healthy. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I want to thank Dr. Griffiths and Monique for joining me today. I also want to give thanks to them and their colleagues who work tirelessly to keep their doors open and be at the ready whenever our kids need them. As we continue to see a surge in respiratory illnesses, doctors tell us there are three things you can do to help them. First, get those vaccinations, flu and COVID. Second, if you're sick, stay home. And finally, wash your hands. I know that we've heard it a million times, but frequent hand washing truly is the number one way to protect your family from getting sick. 
For more information about this episode and for resources to help you decide where to go and when, visit choa.org slash podcasts. That's choa.org slash podcasts. I'm Lynn Smith, and this has been Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not to be considered medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgments when making recommendations for their patients. Patients in need of medical or behavioral advice should consult their family health care providers. In the event of an emergency, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department. Product mentions are not endorsements.